0: This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. Scott Radley sitting in for Rick Zamprin today. Here is what we've got coming up on the podcast today. We're going to be chatting about the greenbelt. This is an ongoing issue that took a strange twist this week. Colin DeMello, a Queens Park Bureau chief for Global News, will join us to talk about that. Carl Suban, father of PK, former Hamilton Bulldog and then lesser known as a Montreal Canadian and national predator. Uh, He's going to join us. He has been pushing hard to ban the use of athletes in gambling ads. That is happening in Ontario. Ontario is banning that. He'll join us to talk about that. We'll be chatting about shopping locally. And the, in, the impact of shopping locally, I think you will be surprised that many people have been, as I say, Colin DeMello about the green belt. We're going to chat about Sussex drive, 24 Sussex drive. What should we do with the dilapidated falling down, falling apart home of prime ministers, Rocky horror picture show celebrating 50 years. We'll get into that and we will set you up for winter with the people behind the old Farmer's Almanac telling us what to expect. It's all coming up. Stay with us.
1: This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML.
0: The Greenbelt has been an ongoing story for the last number of weeks with the Ford government. I mean, it's been going on for longer than that, but it has especially, of course, accelerated and become amplified since the Auditor General's report a week ago, a week and a half, two weeks ago. And uh, there seems to be something every day just about now on this story. Well, yesterday we learned of a situation where now the Ford government is talking about reverting part of the green belt back to the green belt, but it's because of a certain thing. It's not just because it's green belt. I want to bring in Colin DeMello. Uh, He is the Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Joins us now. Colin, how are you this morning? Hey, good morning. Thank you for having me. Doing well. Thanks. I'll always love having you on. Thanks for doing this today. So this is, again, this is not just a case of the Ford government saying, okay, it's Greenbelt, let's put it back because we're backing down. This is, a, this is a bit of a strange story that we've got someone who owns a piece of the Greenbelt who then decided to put it up for sale because they say, as I understand it, and you can fill in the details, that, well, I, I actually don't know how to develop property and kind of flies in the face of what the whole idea was to begin with, No.
2: Yeah, that's exactly correct. Uh, so this is a foreign based owner who purchased the property back in 2018. In fact, just 11 days after Premier Doug Ford was elected. And when they purchased the property for $15.8 million back then, the intent was just to you know, hang on to it as an investment and see where the property goes, not knowing exactly you know, what the government was going to do with it in about uh, uh, six years time. Now that the property has increased in value significantly because it's been removed from the green belt these owners have a new task they've been tasked by the ford government to build homes on this land but they say they're not developers they don't know how to develop and so they're they're trying to find a developer partner that would actually develop the land um and and put you know whether it's um townhouses or condos or single-family homes. They want to partner with a, a developer. But in doing so, the the owners of this land say, now they need to know how much the land is actually valued at. And they say doing kind of a land assessment, it, it won't actually give them a, a good view because it looks backwards, not forwards. And obviously, the, the picture, the landscape has significantly changed. So they they decided to put the land up for sale, they're they don't have an asking price but they're putting the land up for sale so that they can see what the bids come in at so then they have an idea of what the land is valued and then they claim they'd be able to use that valuation in any deal that they kind of come up with with the developer so they know what their what their share what they, what you know their investment of the land is and how that investment is going to grow the ford government saw it completely differently uh they saw it as uh you know a, a landowner trying to make a quick buck a quick sale off of this property that's now been kind of removed from the green belt and they said if this sale goes through they would revert the lands back to the green belt so that's the threat from the ford government but it's really unclear as to exactly what's going on here because the land owners say this is a big misunderstanding the government seems to have kind of reacted to uh the sale listing and not actually the sale itself because the bids haven't even come in yet mm. uh, all told it's a it's a it's a very messy situation and and we're still trying to get to the bottom of exactly how the government is communicating with these landowners because ostensibly if this entire deal to remove lands from the green belt had to do with building homes how did you pick a landowner that has no idea how to actually develop it and has no ties or connections to the development community. It's another head-scratcher on top of a lot of kind of curious decisions related to the Greenbelt.
0: It is, because when I first heard this story, my reaction from a very brief outline of it was, okay, the the the, the landowners are the villains in this story. I, I'm... Are they? I'm not sure now if the landowners are villains in this story, because if they were if they were people who had just snatched it up really quickly, knowing what was going to go on and then are flipping it, knowing what's happened. I, yeah, OK, you could you could point, paint them as the villains. I just I'm not sure if I see it that way now. I, I truthfully, I'm not
2: sure either. I mean, we haven't had direct communication with the owners of the land. One of them, I believe, um, comes from China. Another one is based somewhere in Richmond Hill. Um, you know, they they kind of formed a joint company, um, a numbered company in 2018 to purchase this land. And and they say they were just sitting on it as an investment. Now, we, we know through the Auditor General's report that there were preferred pieces of land that were removed from the Green Belt. We don't know what the exact process for this particular piece of land, how it came to the attention of the Ford government, why they decided to remove it. If you take a look at the land, it actually is. Um, you know, quite a valuable piece of real estate. It's it's by Kingston Road in the 401. It's kind of like nestled right beside the 401. It's close to a casino, uh, a number of shops, uh, you know, from Walmarts to Costco's the hospital, everything. It's a very centrally located uh, facility and it's close to a go train station as well. So you could understand why the government would want to target these pieces, this specific property. But, you know, it, it is still kind of unclear how the government has been communicating uh with these developers because these these uh, sorry the, the landowners because the landowners would have told the government look we don't know how to develop these lands and we're just trying to figure out how to enter a partnership with a developer so that they can kind of give us their proposals for what they would do with the land and and then build on that land um Right, because Colin, there's a lot of question here. And we've asked the premier's office, how exactly are you communicating with these landowners? And secondly, did the government enter into any contracts with these landowners to say, you know, thou must develop X number of homes on these properties? Or is the government just banking on a promise here from these uh, Mm -hmm. landowners? That, too, is unclear, because if they entered into a contract and they try to revert the lands back into the greenbelt, you can very quickly see how this is going to get uh, very messy for the Ford government.
0: Yeah, and, and look, the idea of someone buying land as an investment is hardly rare. There's tons of people who are not necessarily billionaires who own a piece of land up on a lake somewhere or wherever else, and they're just waiting for someone to come and waiting for the property to rise. And so again, it, it's it's a little confusing about what's going on. Is this, though, we've got, we got a minute left here, is this... Is this the, there's been a lot of pressure now on the Ford government about the green belt and a lot of blowback. Is is this an opportunity for the government to find a spot and be able to start backtracking a little bit without losing face because, hey, we're gonna take this back to the green belt, but we don't have to look like we're admitting that we did anything wrong. We can have the other person look like they did something wrong. I I
2: think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, the premier recently has, has ramped up his rhetoric aimed at developers saying if you don't do x y and z by these dates by 2025 if there's no building shovels in the ground he'll revert the lands back into the green belt so it's a good way for the premier to kind of make himself look like suddenly the hero of the situation um and at the same time make the developers the villains and say look you know we gave them a deadline we gave them a target they didn't keep up there under the bargain so the land is going back and a way for them to save face the problem is though all the things that have already occurred with packages being given from developers to the government and um, and everything that came up in the AG's report, the potential RCMP investigation, the integrity commissioner's investigation, all of that is based on behavior. And none of the future behavior of the government is going to change past behavior. That's the stuff that's under investigation by multiple agencies. And that's what ultimately could get them in trouble. So the past is already written. And there's no going back and changing that, even if they revert all the lens back to the green belt today.
0: Colin DeMello, Queens Park Bureau Chief for Global News. We love having you on. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Since
0: 1951, when Louis Saint Laurent moved into 24 Sussex Drive, that home, has been the home of our prime ministers. Justin Trudeau never moved in because the house was falling into disrepair and needed all kinds of repairs and was actually considered a fire hazard. And that's now brought us to today because there is great debate about whether 24 Sussex Drive should remain. The home of prime minister should be fixed up at the cost of tens of millions of dollars, or if it should be knocked down or whatever. And the prime minister should be moved somewhere else. What do we do with a historic landmark like this? I, I just, I can't imagine this discussion could ever be held about something like 10 Downing Street. You would fix it. Or the White House. You would fix it. But what about 24 Sussex Drive? Catherine Spencer-Ross is the president of Heritage Ottawa. She joins us now. Thank you for your time today. Appreciate you jumping in.
3: My pleasure to be with you.
0: Where do you stand on this one? Because this is, uh, it would be costly for sure to do this. By all accounts, it would be $40 million, 50 something in there. But it's also historic. What, what do we do with this?
3: Uh, Well, Heritage Ottawa has for years been advocating for the uh, future of 24 Sussex to be completely separate from the uh, suitable residence for the Prime Minister. Uh, So the government needs to have its discussions about where they're going to put the Prime Minister. If it's not going back into 24 Sussex, we still advocate for the retention of the building and its rehabilitation for um, public use.
0: The... The discussion always becomes difficult with things like this because no government wants to be seen as directing tens of millions of dollars to its own party and to its own leader, which is inevitably what has to happen. So does this then become paralysis that no one will do anything? So it just sits there.
3: Well, I mean, I think one of the problems is that people forget, and I would say government forgets as well, um, that the House and the property is for the office of the Prime Minister. It's not for an individual Prime Minister. It's not for a party. It's for the office of Prime Minister, and that's a Canadian function. Mm. So there's no reason why any government should be afraid of spending money on it. There, you know, The government is now talking about finding a suitable uh, venue for another building. So they're proposing to build something. Somebody is going to be paying the money. I mean, face it, as you mentioned, you know, there are places like 10 Downing Street. Um, they would fix up the building. Um, in our case, if 24 Sussex is not suitable, something still has to be found to house the Prime Minister. That's a fact. You can't have the Prime Minister not in a, a, a proper residence. You can't have them not having proper office space if they choose to combine them. It's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's part of the office. It has nothing to do with the individual.
0: Do you think that most Canadians, I think most Canadians know the name 24 Sussex Drive. I'd be surprised if the majority, the vast majority didn't know that address, but do you think most Canadians have ever been, could care less about it, could identify it in a picture? Do you, do it's, it's not as recognizable, I don't think, as some of the ones we just mentioned. Does that make it less likely that Canadians would want to spend the money to save it because they don't necessarily know much about it?
3: I think that, I think you're absolutely right there. Um, yes, it is a very known address. I don't think, um, nine out of ten Canadians would be able to pick it out of a lineup.
4: Hmm.
3: Um, but it is its associative values that are the important part. I mean, the, the, the house was built in 1868. Um, there were three lum- successive lumber barons and, uh, who lived in the house. Um, and in fact, they were all Members of Parliament at one time or another, and then when it was expropriated by the federal government and Louis Syllema moved in in, in 1951, um, it has been it has housed the successive prime ministers. The only ones that have not lived in there were Kim Campbell for the fort, short time she was prime minister, and of course Justin Trudeau, who chose not to move in there because it was deemed not safe for his family. Uh, so it has these longstanding. Um, associative values, it has a history. So regardless of what the future for the building is in terms of the Prime Minister, it still should be retained and rehabilitated as a a building that has importance to Canada.
0: Catherine, you know, every time this topic comes up, the one thing that always comes to mind for me is how did we let it get to here? Because this didn't happen overnight. It doesn't go from being a perfectly functional, perfectly good house to being in disrepair with rats and electrical problems and everything else. How did how did it not get kept up over the years?
3: I think it's exactly what you said at the beginning. No government wanted to take responsibility for fixing the building. But you and I both know that if we let our own houses go like that, we would have to move out too. So it's, it's a problem, and the, the National Capital Commission is responsible for the upkeep of these uh, these official residences, and this is just one of them. Mm. The, is- uh, the But the National Capital Commission has to get its money from the government, and if the government doesn't cough up the funds, then the work can't be done, and it becomes a vicious cycle. And, of course, then the costs keep going up, and people say, oh, it's way too much to fix. It's the same thing if you don't replace your furnace you're going to have to do it sometime, and you're going to be paying more because it was cheaper before.
0: Uh, okay, we got a, a, just a few seconds here, but an example that comes to mind is, um, and I know it's not a great comparison, so bear with me, but in Toronto, Casa Loma was built. It, uh, the owner couldn't keep it going, so it basically went into the hands of a charity which did the work to fix it up and then could use it as a museum. Is there any group, maybe your group, but is there any group that if the government were to say, if you will fix it up, we will give you this house to use as a museum or use as something else. Does that group, does that person exist?
3: I'm not sure the person exists, but I suspect that um, there would be a move to retain the building. Um, I would hope there would be a move, and there are many people to bring into the conversation. Um, But I, I and Heritage Auto, we feel that it's very important that the building stay in public hands, um, rather than um, going to um, you know somebody who has tons of money wants to move in there to live in a, in the house, um, but in public hands. And I think we need to talk to anybody who has any relationship with the building, and that includes the Algonquins, because of course the uh, property on which the uh, building sits is Algonquin territory. So there are lots of opportunities. We just need a little bit of imagination, a lot of money,
1: but it's all doable.
0: Catherine Spencer-Ross, president of Heritage Ottawa. Uh, great chat. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: How much money stays local when you shop at a large retailer with a physical location, Walmart or something like that? How much Out of every dollar, how much stays in the local city when you shop at Walmart or somewhere like that? Just think about a number. Lock a number into your head because I don't think you're going to be right. Probably, at least the people who were asked this didn't seem to know the answer very well. Let me bring on Ryan Below. He's the vice president of legislative affairs for Ontario in the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Ryan, how are you this morning? Good morning. I'm doing well. Excellent. So... Uh, Angus Reid asked people this question and the average person or the the common answer was 37 cents of every dollar spent at one of these big Walmarts or whatever else, big national, international corporations, 37 cents stays in the local market. What is the real number?
5: The real number is only 11 cents. People really overvalue multinationals.
0: And uh, same question, how much money if you go shop at a local store? So not a big box store, but a local mom and pop store. Uh, how much of that stays local?
5: So people think 38 cents. The actual answer is 66, undervaluing small businesses by about the same amount.
0: So why is this? Why are we, and truthfully, if you had asked me that question, I don't have any idea what answer I would have given, but I would not have said 11 and 66. I'm, I'm quite confident. So why... Why is this so why are we so off on our understanding of this?
5: Well, I, I think that's sort of the physical location part that gets us. I think if, you know, perhaps we asked about Amazon, we might have gotten the answer a little bit closer. But I think there's this belief that, you know, they're 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 physically here. They also hire people in the community. They must be the same. But the reality is is that the big multinationals just, Don't participate in the local business ecosystem the way small businesses do. They're not sourcing from small businesses. The profits obviously are not staying local. The charitable donations tend not to stay local. Um, We really, I think when we, you know, buy an item at a business, it's sort of, it's here, we've got it, that's it. and We don't consider, you know, where it came from or or where the process of, of obtaining that item happened within the business, which... When it comes to a local small business, really is local and provides a much greater community benefit when you shop there.
0: You mentioned Amazon. I don't want to dump on Amazon. I bought something from Amazon yesterday. I'm not anti Amazon, but that's a different story entirely because they, in many cases, most cases, all cases, don't have a physical location in the city. Do we know how much money stays in the local market when you buy something that's entirely online?
5: Uh, even even less. Uh, it's it's closer to about eight cents. Uh, I'm when surprised it's, it's that like much.
0: I'm surprised it's that much. Yeah, really and
5: truly. And uh, again, if you don't have a, you know, a warehouse or a distribution center um, in your community, less.
0: Okay. So that being said, and and I, I, while I said before that, I don't know what answer I would have given and people listening, I don't know what number they had locked in their heads so they can tell whether they were close or not. But why is this, again, I said, why are we so confused about this, but we surely know we surely understand that more would stay here if it's a local store. So why do we not then by default go and buy there?
5: Well, I think that's just sort of the thing. And and I think the last, you know, three, four years have a little bit to do with it. I mean, early on in the pandemic for obvious reasons, local businesses were closed down, a lot of shopping in particular went online, but went big, big store because big stores were allowed to remain open selling the same things. Uh, And I think those habits were sticky. I think, you know, we're not seeing quite the numbers that we saw, you know, in May 2020, but we are still seeing most people sort of default to the big box. And I think a lot of it is we've been conditioned on price, especially now when times are a little bit tougher to believe that the big guys offer the best price. And so we don't even bother checking the little guys out and telling you it's not always true. Um, you you go into a small business, you'll find that sometimes they are as competitive, if not more competitive, uh, than the big guys, but there's just that mentality that we can't really seem to get past that says, you know, the bigger guys offer the better price. And so that's, that's where we're going to shop. That's what, uh, dictates our pattern.
0: I I agree with you wholeheartedly that that's not always the case, but uh, we do have to admit, I think that it often is the case. And that I think probably becomes one of the big challenges. Things are tough for people. And, I have to make a decision in some cases, do I want to support the local business and maybe get better service, but pay a premium for that? Or can I get it at a super discount somewhere else? It, it does become a decision, a conscious decision.
5: Absolutely, and that's sort of what we're trying to do with getting this 66 versus an 11 number out there. We're not saying that no one should ever shop at you know an Amazon or a Walmart again, and then look, that'd be outright unrealistic. But if people can just be a little bit more conscious about the the purchases and maybe even consider, you know, one or two purchase, purchases, shifting those to a small business, even considering shifting those to a small business, it really does make a big difference to the community when six times the amount of your dollar winds up staying local mm. um, when you make that purchase. It's not just a win for the business, it's a win for the whole community.
0: Ryan, how much of this though, how much of the challenge is, and you just alluded to it a second ago, we went through COVID, we were stuck inside, we could, the small businesses, we couldn't go there. How much of this has become habitual that in that time we learned to do that, it became very convenient, the thing shows up at our porch 24 hours later, and now I'm just used to doing it and I kind of love the convenience.
5: I think a fair bit of it, and that's sort of the the worry there. I mean, it, it's not just the you know fact that we were locked down. You look at something now with a lot of cities and hybrid work, you're just not in your downtown courses frequently you're not passing a window display you're not popping into that shop on the way home because like oh it's it's there and i'm here you're at home a lot and the easiest thing to reach for is the phone um so you know really encouraging people to get back out in their communities to check out their small businesses Um, while understanding times are tough small businesses are feeling that pinch too about half still aren't back to their their pre-pandemic revenue levels Um, And that is that is worrisome. There's a lot of cost pressures there. A lot of them are at risk. And given the value they provide to the local community, losing them again is more than just seeing a boarded up shop. It is a major loss for the community.
0: We got to run. But do you believe that it is that this ship can be turned around or have we is that going to be a very, very tough task to get people to change their patterns now?
5: I think I think it's got to happen incrementally and smallly again, one or two purchases, five, 10% of your spending can make such a huge difference. What we're looking for is just a pause before you hit checkout. Can I check out the business around the corner? Can I check out the business to downtown and see if they have that? If people are putting that into their thinking, I think we're on the right path and we can change it enough that we're going to start to see that help really come in.
0: Ryan Moe, Vice President of Legislative Affairs for Ontario for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Ryan, really appreciate you doing this today. Thank you.
5: Anytime. Thank you. You're
1: listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: You are probably aware that there is a very significant anniversary this year not just of the movie, but of the play that spawned it. Rocky Horror Picture Show turns 50. The the stage play started 50 years ago this year, and I don't think has ever stopped. The movie came out, and now it is playing somewhere all the time with people dressing up and singing along and whipping stuff at stages, and it is a full-on thing. Why? Why has it lasted when others have not? Let me bring in Dustin Jodway. He's a studio manager, first vice chair of the Hamilton Theatre Incorporated. He has played in Rocky Horror Picture Show. And as soon as I saw his name on my list today, I said, I know who that guy is. He is a former Canadian champion in the Karaoke (laughs) World Championships. Dustin, how are you?
6: Good morning. How's it going, my friend?
0: It is going well. Good to talk to you again. It's been a long time. It has uh, been a while. Yeah, good to have you back. So... Help me out here. This, uh, there are a lot of movies that fall into the sort of cult classic, the, the movie that, you know, people wasn't necessarily expected to be a hit and becomes a thing. Uh, we could go down a whole long list of them. Why this one? Why has this one had the lasting power that it has? And, and not only the lasting power, but the, the crowd participation lasting power that this one has.
6: Yeah, I mean, I've done, like you said, I've done Rocky Horror a couple times, um, and each time I've done it, it gets bigger and bigger for some reason. Audience involvement, I I, I say. Um, And I I honestly think that it's been around for such a long time and it's become such a huge thing in the theatre community just because of how fun it is to do. Um, Anything goes with Rocky Horror. You know what I mean? Like, when, when do you get to be up on stage or when do you get to go and see a show and throw toast at the stage and get away with it or bring in water guns or rice? um you know it's when you do when you do the show it's fully immersive and you know it's it, it's not like any other theater experience that i've ever been part of um both on stage and off stage
0: I was going to answer your question. Cause we've seen people try to throw stuff onto stages lately and the performers throw the microphone back at them. So it, it hasn't gone particularly well, <laughs> except in this particular case, this and bare naked ladies, when you're allowed to throw craft dinner at them. And I think <laughs> those are the only two things where it's acceptable behavior in a theater. But do you, do you know the, the history of that? Because when did, when did it start that that became a thing? Do we know when that really caught on? Oh,
6: jinkies um, I to be honest with you I, I wouldn't know like when the exact date would be going down but um, it definitely um, you know they started doing shadow casts uh, of the show um, being they would have the the actual video playing in the background and they would have live actors playing it on a stage in front of the screen um, and I think that's when it started to really pick up was when when they had the live aspect going along with like the actual movie going on behind them. I could be wrong, but that seems like it would be, it would be, you know, something that would come down, trickle down the line, you know?
0: Yeah. It, no, it, it, again, one of the puzzles about this is, and, and I'm going to offend somebody by saying this, and <laughs> don't, don't take it personally, but <laughs> I, I would argue, you can agree or disagree, Dustin, I would argue that Rocky Horror Picture Show is not the greatest story ever told, and probably not the greatest musical ever written, and yet for some reason it has held, as I say, a spot in people's hearts and their attitudes for longer than some that probably would be better stories, better musicals, better whatever. And again, it's, it's kind of puzzling why some things stick and some things don't.
6: Hey, you know what? Stranger things have happened, and it shows that exactly in Rocky Horror.
4: <laughs>
0: yes
6: <laughs> there, there. Are, stranger things will happen. Stranger things can happen, and as long as you go for the ride, you're obviously going to have
0: a good time. <laughs> one of the one of the things, though, that this has done, and you've touched on it a little bit here, is the participation. We've seen. I, I think Rocky Horror has. It took a while, but there's a lot of uh, theaters and others that have said, well, wait a second, if this can work for Rocky Horror Picture Show, we can do this elsewhere. I know now that there are Sound of Music sing-alongs where people come and get completely dressed up and you come as whatever, or, or Grease. We just played Grease a few minutes ago here on the show. We were playing some of the music or whatever. It, it seems that this has, and I think it directly goes back to this. I think it's, hey, wait, if it works for this, why can't it work for X, Y, or Z?
6: Yeah, I, and you know what? People do try and do these sing-along songs, these sing-along things, and um, for a lot of different shows. I don't know personally if they ever go as well as as the Rocky Horror always does. Um, I've, to be honest with you, I, I guess I'm a terrible theater kid, and I've never been to one of these sing-alongs uh, other than the shadow cast of Rocky Horror, because that's the only one that really, really. i was gonna say. It sings to me um, that's well, the that, only works. One that really interests me and in going to, to to see it live like that you know
0: uh, well I'll, I'll tell you one of the funny stories that I heard uh, recently and I can't remember if it was here in town or Toronto but uh, b- the spin-off kind of idea for this sound of music people were all of a sudden seeing a whole bunch of people dressed as Nazis walking on the streets and oh, had no goodness. idea what was going on while well, they were dressed up as uh, Rolf from Sound of Music. And yep. uh, But you know what? That should probably come with a warning of some kind outside. You may see people dressed as a Nazi. It's not white supremacy taking over the streets. It's a character. But oh. I, I, I would guess, though, the same thing. People walk into a theater dressed as some of the characters in Rocky Horror Picture Show, you might get a sideways glance. Or maybe not so know, much today, a... but once upon a time. <laughs> I think
6: I'd rather see a dude walking in in fishnets and a corset than walking in looking like a Nazi. Uh,
0: more than likely. Me. Well, more <laughs> than likely. But either way, I say you know maybe times have changed a bit. But once upon a time, I think you may have got a little bit of an odd look if that was the case. Uh, Fifty yeah. years of Rocky Horror Picture Show, uh, the play, um, the movie, everything else, and I have no doubt that. Uh, Over the next little while, we'll see lots of different things to do with this. Uh, Dustin Jodway, a champion karaoke singer, but that's not all, um, obviously. Dustin, appreciate you jumping on again. Thanks for doing this. Thanks so much. Have a great day. You too. Good chatting with you again.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: A while back, uh, we had our next guest on the show because at the time, there was a lot of concern brewing about gambling ads on television, especially sports gambling ads with professional athletes as the front people. And, you know, if, if you've watched any sports on TV in the last year or so, uh, there's no doubt you've seen gambling ads. They are everywhere. You you cannot escape them. They're legal, but should athletes role models be the ones who are fronting it and in Critics say encouraging younger people, especially to get involved. Well, as I say, my next guest was one of the leading voices calling for this to stop. Looks like he may have got his wish. Ontario announced yesterday the province is going to ban the use of athletes in advertising for online gambling beginning in February of 2024. Carl Subban is the father of three NHLers, including best known around here because he used to play for the Hamilton Bulldogs, PK <laughs> Subban. Carl, how are you this morning? Very
7: good, very good, especially after having my uh, first cup of coffee.
0: There you go, and I appreciate you jumping on so early this morning, but for I know for you or I suspect anyway for you, yesterday was a pretty good day because this is what you've been pushing for, partially anyway.
7: Yeah, it's like I opened the gift under the tree and it wasn't really exactly what I wanted. Okay, I might have to return it to the store. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, is this put it this way. I, I know that you were uh, at the time pushing for something a little broader to um, about the ads entirely on sports. It was a broader issue, but is this a good start? Is this somewhere that we can work from in your mind that will help make things a little bit better?
7: Yeah, our uh, group, uh, Ban Ads uh, for Gambling, we welcome the ban on an athlete and other endorsements, but it doesn't really go far enough. You know, we know that any sort of advertising for gambling increases betting, especially among children and youth and other vulnerable people. And, you know, when a young person uh, sees a superstar athlete uh, being associated with gambling, um they're not going to hear the responsible part you know because you know action speaks louder than words and um yeah it doesn't go far enough
0: what would you have said and, and i mean i know because of your your boys that uh you know you are exposed to professional athletes and you you know socially you see them socially at games or whatever what would you have said if you had bumped face-to-face into Wayne Gretzky, because he's been the face of this. what Greatest player ever, most famous hockey player. Would you have told him face-to-face, I don't think you should be doing this?
7: You know, I just, instead of Wayne, I'm going to say PK. Okay. <laughs> and, and, you know, Wayne's a little bit older and, and, and so on. But, um, you know, I would say to, I can't really, PK's an adult now, so I really can't tell him what to do. Um, and, uh, you know, like I said before, I'm, I'm always going to love him, but if he's doing certain things I don't like, um, I'm going to let him know. And it doesn't mean I don't love you PK, but, uh, I just don't like what you're doing because it's not good for you. It's not good for the pocketbook and it's not going to be good for your mental health and it's not going to be good for the people who love you and adore you and cherish you. You know, and and from children to teenagers and to adults, and we know that there are quite a few in that group who are vulnerable to developing addiction uh, in gambling.
0: Do you think that? Uh, certainly, I I know from your position that you believe that the ads in general encourage it. That's what an ad is supposed to do. I mean, if it's a successful ad, I guess it's worked, right? But do you you believe that having the face of athletes there as as people that kids, especially kids, look up to, do you believe that makes kids more susceptible to buying in, having the face of an athlete involved?
7: You know, I, I really believe in the power of of children and their ability to think and make decisions and so on. And and so many of our young people are are on the right track. And you know, I love their values and morals, and they know wrong from right. But we have some children, you know, who are not really good at decision making, and 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 adults too. And so we have a group in our society who are very very vulnerable. It's like at school. I always remember the first day that the, the beautiful snow comes down. And I'll go on the PA system. Okay, Mr. Suban here, uh, we don't want you to make any snowballs, and we don't want you to throw them. And guess what?
0: As <laughs> soon <laughs> as you always, say, that, soon yeah, as you say gonna, that, guaranteed they're going to do it.
7: No, they're going to do it anyway. After, after how many years in school, they're going to do them. I said, no, you're not allowed to make them. You can play this in the snow, but you're not allowed to make them because you're going to throw them. Because there are always a few kids. My back is turning the yard and they're fighting. And, and mm. so that's what happens, you know? And so the, 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 these athletes, you know, they, they, they have a lot of power. Mm. It's like I'm in an arena and, and Marner walks in the arena. And guess what? The parents, they all go into him and all the children and they want autograph. So when they see him, if they, uh, Marner is not, a, you know, I'm not going to say he's in these ads and so on, but we just don't want, these athletes using their power in in that way. It's like it's like they're taking advantage of a vulnerable vulnerable group of people. And I think those superstar athletes who are in it, they're using their success the wrong way. You know what? It's when you use what you're doing, uh, what you have, uh, uh, what we attribute your success uh, to, and you're using it in, in the wrong way. And I think it's the wrong way. I can say that if you're encouraging. People to gamble. I think you're using your power and your success in ways that are not helpful uh, to to some people in our society.
0: Carl, we appreciate the time today. Always good to have a band touching base in Hamilton. We, uh, we we think of PK fondly when uh, when we think of the Hamilton Bulldogs. Appreciate you doing this. Thank you.
7: Yeah, no, thank you. And I remember his first year in Hamilton. I, uh, never, uh, I'll never forget it. What a great year it was. And thanks to all the people in Hamilton. Have a great day.
0: You too, Carl. Have another cup of coffee. Have a great day.
7: Well, I need a couple more. Thank you.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: Winter is coming, and what is it going to bring well. Many people turn to the Old Farmer's Almanac to find out what is going to be coming along. We are going to do the exact same thing. Carol Conair is editor of the Old Farmer's Almanac, who joins us now. Carol, good morning. How are you?
4: Good morning. How are you, Scott?
0: I am terrific. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on and spawning... Uh, that music that is already making us feel like we're f- skipping ahead three months, but okay. Um, yeah, that hurt. It hurt somewhere. It, in my it does. It does hurt a little <laughs> bit. It does. But okay, so Old Farmer's Almanac always comes out with whether, well, I don't know if you call it predictions or anticipations or look forward or whatever you wish to use, but uh, I will leave it to you to be the weather woman right now. Um, what here in Southern Ontario should we expect for the coming winter?
4: Uh, Well, you did play the right music because it looks like there's going to be a major snowstorm when I think about, when I look ahead and what we've predicted or what we indicate for southern Ontario. Uh, December 22nd to 25th looks like quite a, a good snowstorm coming your way. And then you can anticipate some bitter cold the first half of February. Overall, the winter's going to be colder and with greater precipitation and snow, and that's typical of an El Nino year. And then a cooler, wetter spring is also what we're calling for looking ahead.
0: I am amazed that you're that specific. How are you able to say December 22 to 25th? How can we be that specific about when we're going to have a storm?
4: Well, that's a good question. And, of course, you know, we've only been at it since 1792. (laughs) So, you know... We um you know, there's always there's we do say there's always lore and luck, but the, the truth is is that it's always been about three sciences. Even our founder, Robert B. Thomas, he used the same sciences. It's meteorology, which is of course the study of the weather, climatology, but how climate affects the weather specifically, and then sun science, which is what we apply when we look at the, the uh pattern of the sunspot activity and that affects our weather and so you know they're the same sciences but they've come a long way and the data is like incredible it's mountains and mountains of data so essentially we employ um, a blend a secret formula of those of those sciences if you will and and we can look at you know the same pattern in a year seven say of the sun cycle and what's and then really anticipate as you say down to the day what what typically would happen in that cycle
0: because i'm as i'm listening to you and okay so you're bringing in science because i think and and, you know this is not meant to uh to be offensive to you but i think a lot of people they see the cover of the book it's an old looking cover and they think oh this is you know someone outside with a divining rod and some uh whatever else (laughs) who's you know coming up with something this is not all just like licking your finger and sticking it in the air and saying oh snow is coming there's more to it than that
4: There's a lot more to it than that. But yet we also know, you know, the natural world tells us a lot about the cycles that affect us all, you know. So um, there's always some of that because we have... That history but it really is it really is in fact science and as we all know getting you know the kind of data that we can pull together is, is pretty fascinating and that makes our predictions even stronger because again we can look at really specific patterns that have occurred when these same you know when these same conditions are there this sunspot activity with this type of el nino activity um, and then of course the weather patterns that we're all seeing that are kind of extreme shall we say
0: when, and I'm going to say when, not if, when you are correct on this one, mm-hmm. is there a big celebration in the office that, look at that, we nailed it. Look at that, we got we got it exactly right. Or or is it, you know, a little more, yeah, of course we got it right. Why are they even questioning that?
4: Uh, it's a good question. So um, we, in fact, on July 27th, had a tornado touchdown uh, in our town, in Dublin, New Hampshire, where okay. we're headquartered. And um, so after we... You know shuttled back from the basement because it it touched down around us, luckily, no one was hurt. there was a lot of tree damage and and they no one got a picture of it because we were all hopefully in safety. but you know the the um people who do these things come out and they said yes indeed it was a tornado and so but when we we rose from the basement and had full light, we checked we checked to see what we had predicted <laughs> and we predicted thunderstorms, so very severe, <laughs> so we were like, yay, but you know." Also, yay that no one got hurt by the by the tornado.
0: Absolutely, but no, that is uh, see, it's uh, everyone likes it when they predict it right. I, you know, we'll we will see, but we're going to make a note of this one because we are expecting, according to the old farmer's almanac, we are expecting very cold winter, a uh, snowy winter. Uh, you just heard from Carol, December 22 to 25. Stock up on supplies because you're going to be snowed in. You're yeah, not going to be able to get out of your house or traverse your streets. We'll see. And you know what, yeah, Carol? When that happens, we're going to call you and have you back on here and I'll let you gloat perfect <laughs> Carol thank you so much for coming on today thanks for the time
3: thank
0: you Scott
1: okay enjoy the
0: rest of summer <laughs> absolutely yeah we're, oh, we're not ready I hit the button and got rid of her oops uh, thank you to Carol for coming on
1: thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast you can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com
0: the Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple podcast Google podcast and wherever you get your favorite podcast I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode, and make sure you rate and review.